Good morning, friends. It is good to be with you today. Um, and uh, wasn't able to last week at Christ the King. Um, many of you know, but if you don't, uh, my wife gave birth to our third child, a daughter, Emery Autumn, and uh, last Saturday, a week ago yesterday. Um, and uh, she was a little over six weeks early, so she was a bit of a surprise. Uh, she's right now down at the, uh, the NICU at Albany Med and um, being well taken care of there. Um, and I actually will apologize in advance for what may appear to be antisocial. I'm going to jet out right at the end of the service today just because she's on a fairly regimented routine medically and feedings and all that kind of stuff. And my wife and I try to be there as much as we can for that. Um, she, she's doing pretty well. It's hard as parents, um, first-time parents of a, of a baby in the NICU. It's been helpful to talk to some others who've had that similar experience. Uh, that Some of what she's going through is fairly normal. Um, some of what she's going through is a little bit more complicated by the fact that she has Down syndrome. And so these are things that we're wrestling through uh, as a family. And I, I will just tell you and thank you that we've felt your prayers. We've felt your uh, practical support in so many different loving ways, through meals, through rides, through other acts of showing love, and we felt your prayer support, support too. Um, in ways we can't tell with whatever God is doing in Emery's life, but in ways we can tell as Leah and I um, work through the implications of what it means to lead our family in this new season. Um, and so I thank you for that, and we, we, we just ask that you continue to pray for us. Um, but I am I'm here this morning, I'm preaching, I told Matt um, I, I want to preach this week because I actually was halfway through my prep for this message the following week when Emery was born, and so I figured might as well capitalize on that and, uh, and finish it off. Who knows how providentially God will have used that. It went a different direction this week than I was thinking last week, um, but he is in all those details, I believe. So if you want to, in your own Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 22, and it will be on the screen behind me as well. But today we'll be looking at verses 15 to 22. And this is the famous passage in which Jesus calls his listeners and us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, which seems particularly relevant for the times in which we live. Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. So here, here's how I, I would like to approach our time for today break it up into three different sections, um, in a way almost two different ser sermons. The first, one I w the first thing I want to do is kind of a, a micro or a short character study on the Pharisees here who are interacting with Jesus. Um, I, I think it, there can be a temptation, I've said this before, 
to quickly throw out the extremes in scripture, the villains, the people who kind of operate in the margins of what we would say as Christians we should be like, uh, and to throw them out so that we um, uh, no longer, we don't see them as relevant to ourselves. We, we aren't able to learn from them and what we see in their lives because they're so different than us, we assume. And I think that that's a mistake. My own pilgrim journey of following after Jesus has been oftentimes this pendulum swinging between these two extremes of legalism on the one hand and licentiousness on the other. And my prayer is, and what I think how God works, is that pendulum swings a little bit less over the course of our journey of following Jesus so that we get more and more like him in uh, whatever it means to to be fully engulfed in, in grace and truth, just as Jesus was. By legalism, I mean when we are fixated upon law, what is the right thing to do, being right about things, and so justifying ourselves by being right. And by licentiousness, I mean the opposite extreme, when we kind of don't care about law or rules, and we just presume upon God's grace. Ah, he's going to forgive us. What does it matter whether I live a holy life? Th- that's one pendulum swing experience of Christians, at least my own experience. And so when we look at the Pharisees, we oftentimes see a picture of some of the characteristics that surface in those who are, um, have an aptitude towards legalism or an inclination towards legalism. And so I want to take some time to look at the Pharisees before we move on to two other things. The second thing that we'll look at is we'll examine uh, the question they ask of Jesus that's really on the surface. It's not an illegitimate question. It actually bears relevance to our day and age today but it isn't actually what they need an answer to. And so after Jesus answers their question, he then goes deeper to um, explore what it is that they really need that is the heart of the issue. What it means to give to God what is God's. So let's start off with that brief character study. And in this character study, what I wanna look at is Perhaps the characteristics that will surface out of somebody who's operating out of self-protection rather than out of a desire to please God first and foremost, or, or protecting self-interests rather, rather than God's interests. I think that's what we see here as the driving motivators in the Pharisees' actions and behavior. So five observations about these characteristics that appear when we're operating primarily out of self-interest rather than God's interests, okay? Number one, we see fantasizing about another's downfall. All right, and I think it was verse 15, the Pharisees we see are plotting how to entangle Jesus in his words. All this is happening behind the scenes. They're desiring Jesus' downfall and they're fantasizing about how to make it happen. And simply all I wanna say on this point before we move on is be aware of those times and the amount of time you may spend behind closed doors entertaining conversations you'd like to have with people or scenarios you'd like to see unfold in your head. Sometimes we can play these things, these conversations and scenarios out over and over again ad nauseum until we can get this sense of vindication that we are right or until in our mind's eye we see the other humiliated. But this is coming from a place of guarding and protecting self-interests and not out of the interests of others or pleasing God. But it's what we see the Pharisees doing here, fantasizing about Jesus' downfall. Second thing we see is the compromising of their convictions. See, the Pharisees, um, who were known for holding securely and fastly to their convictions, staunchly so, um, compromised them because they felt threatened by Jesus here. 
Because of Jesus' authority over their lives, they felt insecure, and so they compromise on some previously held convictions, and it shows up in this unlikely collaboration between the Pharisees and the Herodians. So brief unpacking and explanation here of who the Herodians and Pharisees were. The Herodians were this political group that basically supported King Herod, um, and King Herod was not really a Jewish king, but he was given ruling power in Judea and Jerusalem by Rome. Rome had appointed King Herod to keep order in Jerusalem. Part of that was uh, taking the tax in from that was owed by the Jewish people. So the Herodians were this political party. They favored keeping Herod in power for whatever reason, because if he's in power, they probably got some extras as a result. And so these would have been people who were very much in favor of paying tax to Rome and very much in favor of rooting out revolutionaries who were opposed to Jews paying the tax to Rome because in so doing, they would then strengthen their favor with Rome in either case, okay? This is the Herodians. You can already probably see if you're familiar at all with biblical history and the context of Jewish culture, why there would have been some odds here between the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not that big of fans of Rome, to say the least. They were not in favor of this tax. And while on some level they allowed for honor of the emperor, they were not supposed to engage with any graven images of any kind, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in a bit, but the coin they had to use to pay this tax had Caesar's image on it. It was a, it was a problem in their eyes. It was sacrilegious. It was idolatrous for them to use this coin. All right, um, now, the Pharisees would normally have been at worldview odds with the Herodians, but they were willing to make an exception here because they hated Jesus, they felt more threatened by Jesus than they even did of Rome. Because in their minds, they had Jesus trapped now. See the strategy that's in play here. It is, it is brilliant on their part, or at least they thought so at the time, till Jesus went up to them. On the one hand, either Jesus would end up answering this question in support of paying this tax to Rome, and then who's gonna be happy about that? Well, Rome will be happy about that, the Herodians will be happy about that, but his popularity with the Jewish people is going down, right? On the other hand, if he ends up saying, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, and he challenges this tax, in that case, the Herodians could rightly charge him, or in, the, in their minds anyway, with being a revolutionary. He could actually be executed, executed for that. But for this trap to be laid, let me back it up again and just say, the Pharisees had to be willing to compromise their convictions, to collaborate with this group they would have otherwise had nothing to do with. So all this is to, to make this point, as we use this as an opportunity to reflect in the mirror, be aware of when your anger over a situation or your desire to seek justice for yourself in a situation leads you to compromise your convictions. Usually that's an indicator that the underlying motivation is preserving your own self-interests rather than seeking God's interests and seeking to please him first when we're willing to compromise our convictions, okay? Third characteristic we see here is avoiding conflict. All right, and in the Pharisees' plot to destroy Jesus here, notice that they're too cowardly to go to him themselves. Now, I don't know all of what their strategy was, but either way, it was wrong for them to not go and face Jesus themselves. At this point, they've resigned to send their underlings to go and do their bidding instead. All this just to say, be aware of the temptation to deal with conflict in every way in relationships except by directly interacting 
with that person themselves. Gossiping or sending others to do our bidding is usually an indicator that we're trying to self-protect, that there's something we're afraid of rather than we're seeking to please God and honor those created in his image around us, okay? So we see them avoiding conflict. That's not good. And then we see them flattering Jesus in order to manipulate Jesus. See, the, the, the Pharisees here are, are flattering Jesus. They're complimenting him, but it's not with the intent to build him up. They don't really mean what they're saying. They're actually trying to tear him down here. Now, I, I don't think flattery is ever a good thing. Like, I, I've never heard it used in a positive context. I, I, I've heard it, you know, people say like, oh, I'm flattered. So maybe that's meant positively. But in terms of somebody using flattery, at least biblically speaking, it's always a negative thing. Flattery is when we use compliments, something that can be good in and of themselves, with the intent to manipulate somebody else for your own gain. Okay, and Proverbs has a lot to say about flattery. Chapter 26, 28, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth does what? It works ruin. Proverbs 29, 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a what for his feet? A net, something that's meant to trap or ensnare him. So flattery is never a good thing because it's using compliments to manipulate exactly what the Pharisees were doing here. They, these compliments were being used to butter Jesus up, to lower his guard so that hopefully they would be able to get the answer that they want out of him or get him to answer at all. Irony, of course, is that if you reread those things that they say about Jesus, every one of them is absolutely true. But the reality is they were insincere in everything that they said. So... Here, this is what we need to be aware of. Be aware of where we are using, uh, where we are complimenting somebody, um, where we're not actually trying to build them up, but instead perhaps we're, we're seeking to manipulate them, to get favor from them in some way, or maybe even so that they don't suspect the way that we really feel about them, so we'll compliment them, so that we'll, they won't be on guard against us. That, that approach in relationship is not about pleasing God ultimately. That, that approach is about protecting our self-interests on some level. And then the fifth and final observation here, it's not so much a characteristic of the Pharisees we see, it's an outcome, an observation about the outcome, which is that this posture and this motivation and relationship just ends up in fruitless results. Nothing, nothing good happens here. When we approach people and relationships in this way, it can only produce harm and not good. And in fact, it probably will do more harm to us than even that other person. I mean, if you look at what happened here, all the Pharisees did was make Jesus look better and make themselves look like the enemy because after all they were. It accomplished nothing. We're told they marveled and they walked away. But they were actually worse off for it. See, the Pharisees here our cautionary tale for us to be able to learn from. And if we can see ourselves in any of these things, it's the grace of God. The only way we can actually see these things in ourselves is because he's given us a tender, tender enough heart and his spirit is working in our heart to open our eyes to these things. That's his grace, giving us an opportunity to repent of those things, to receive his forgiveness for those things. And if we trust him, what he'll do over time is he will cultivate in us enough security in him that our first impulse in our, react, in our relationships with other people will be their interest and in to please God rather than to self-protect. 
So it's actually a blessing. It is a grace if we can see ourselves in those who are not walking in the way of Christ in Scripture. So here's where I want to go at this point. I, I want to now take a look at, on the surface anyway, what the issue was here with the question that Jesus answers, whether or not to pay taxes. Now, of course, he picks up on their duplicity here. Right In verse 18, we're told he was aware of their malice, of their evil intent, of their insincerity. And so he asks them the question, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? So he points out their hypocrisy. See, taxes isn't what this was really about for them, ultimately. He knew that. There are two different forms of hypocrisy that are in view here, at the very least. The two that I see are, number one, they are, uh, there's a pretense here of sincerity. Pretense meaning you're pretending essentially to be something that you're not or that something is true that in fact is not. And what they're doing is they're pretending to be sincere and really wanting to understand from Jesus and learn from him. Uh, This rabbi, what is your answer to this question? When in reality, they already have their minds made up. Man, how often is that the case, speaking as a human being, where we can be tempted to pretend that we want to understand another person and their perspective, but we really think we've got it all figured out. And our motivation, really, even in the pretense of sincerity, is to manipulate that other person so that we can get them to end up seeing things the way that we do. Now, we should have convictions, deep-held convictions, but a major cause, I think, of breakdowns in relationships, especially now in this volatile culture and environment that we live in our own country, is this pretense of sincerity. Right? You don't have to be the son of God. You don't have to be Jesus to have sniffed this out. It's pretty apparent and obvious when somebody is patronizing you with the appearance of caring about what you think, when in fact they don't really care about what you think, but they have another agenda. And I think that stems from a lack of humility. See, you can have deeply held convictions and humility at the same time, but man, it's almost impossible to do on your own. That combination of things is something we see in Jesus is something that only can be produced by the Holy Spirit and by continuing to bathe yourself over and over again with the reality of the gospel's application, the good news of Jesus Christ and his grace in your own life. But it's possible to be both deeply convicted about truth and also sincerely humble and want to learn from others, something absent and a form of hypocrisy in the Pharisees here. The second one was a little bit more on the surface in terms of the activity that was happening, and that was the The fact that when Jesus asked them to produce this coin, they had one readily on hand. It's amazing how they produced this coin for Jesus to use as an object lesson uh, that they thought to be so scandalous and idolatrous. A little bit more background on this coin. One thing to Rome's credit is that they were sensitive enough to the religious laws and theological views of the Jews so that they actually allowed them to mint their own copper coinage with no images on it, okay? Because the first and second commandments are, uh, you know, don't worship anybody, anybody other than God and don't make any graven images. So they allowed them to do this with their own coinage. However, when it came to paying this uh, poll tax, it was a once a year tax that was levied on the Jews, they had to use this silver denarius, um, this particular form, form of Roman Uh, coin to pay this tax. Now, on that coin was Tiberius Caesar's image. 
All right, there's a graven image, not supposed to have a coin that has a, or anything that has an image on it. Not only that, but there was an inscription on there that said, son of a God, high priest. So not only a graven image, but then a claim that Caesar was God. So you can understand and empathize with why the Jews felt so scandalous and idolatrous about using these coins. And yet, the reality is the Pharisees seemed to have them at the ready. It was just too inconvenient not to have this coinage on hand. Listen, I think moral of the story here is legalism is pretty inconvenient. Right? In light of the broader teaching here we see in this passage, I'm not so sure that Jesus had a huge problem with people carrying around these coins if their hearts weren't actually worshiping Caesar. But the point is this, when it comes to the hypocrisy that was in view here, if you're going to declare a standard of holiness as the Pharisees did, you should at least live by it, and they weren't. So he confronts their hypocrisy, and then he answers their questions about whether or not, their question about whether or not to pay the tax. He says in verses 20 and 21, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. There is a theological tension that we don't have to spend too long in this text to realize. And that is the tension between the fact that there are actually things that belong to Caesar, Jesus says. Right? There's a legitimate authority that belongs to the institution of the worldly institution of government. Jesus is saying that here. And then he also goes to say there are things that belong to God. What do we do with this tension? Let me first say that what Jesus is doing here is he's actually validating both civil and spiritual authority without giving a prescription for one ends and the other begins. He's giving us at least that much here. But what I want to do is try to extract as best I can from this brief saying three observations from this teaching that are principles that will hopefully help us to navigate that tension we experience between civil and spiritual authority, okay? And it's not going to get down into the nitty-gritty of specific instances, and I think that's on purpose on Jesus' part. Three observations, though. Number one, what are the things Jesus is referring to here that belong to God? Answer, simply put, everything. No Jew in Jesus' day and no Christian today would deny the reality that everything belongs to God. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and everything that dwells therein. It's all his. So naturally then the question is, if everything is God's, then how is the government entitled to anything? And the answer is this. The things that are Caesar's are his derivatively. They're derived from something outside of himself. Caesar only has what he has because God has granted it to him. Jesus understood this well when in John 19, 11, when he's essentially on trial before Pontius Pilate, Roman ruler in that region, Pilate is talking about his authority with pomp and Jesus answers him, Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless, at all, unless it had been given to you from above. This, by the way, was a man who had the power to acquit Jesus of the charges against him and didn't. This is a picture of the sovereignty of God over fallen human rulers, where without God being evil himself, God works through those human rulers to accomplish his purposes. It's kind of mind-blowing, 
mind-boggling. It's complex. But it does lead to the second observation here. Nonetheless, while God ultimately is in charge of and has everything at his disposal and it all belongs to him, there's nonetheless a limit to Caesar's authority. Because if God owns everything, then Caesar's authority must be limited, right? But, but how is the question. And the answer is this. If Caesar calls us to do something that contradicts what God calls us to do, then that's where Caesar's authority ends. One of the clear examples of this in scripture comes from Acts chapter five, verse 29. Here, Peter and the apostles had been preaching but were reprimanded by the Jewish religious leaders and the high priest charges Peter and the apostles not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And how does Peter respond on behalf of he and the disciples? We must obey God and not men. Clearly, it was a contradiction of God's will for the authorities to demand Peter to be silent here about Jesus. There is a point at which the authorities that God has designed in this world comes to an end when it contradicts what he has clearly revealed as to be his will. Now, there's much controversy around this um, because it's a difficult thing to understand and parse out the nuances of. And we seem to live somewhere in between Romans 13 and Revelation 13. What do I mean by that? Romans 13, verses 1 and 2 says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And this is the Apostle Paul who's writing to the church in Rome, and he goes on to describe that function of the government that God has intended to be to punish the evil and to reward the good, to seek the health and welfare of its citizens. Uh, An example of this, kind of on a very grassroots level, um, a, a good friend of mine whom I trust uh, was working for years at a Christian camp and he, he shared this story um, about how he was overseeing the summer staff. Many of them were comprised of high school aged uh, uh, youth, kids, um, these were minors. And as anybody who has worked at a camp in general and Christian camp in particular, non-for-profit Christian camp can attest to, it's hard work, there's a lot to be done and there are not enough hands to go around to get all that work done. Nonetheless, Um, my friend had kind of shared how he'd grown increasingly concerned because uh, there was so much demand upon these kids. They were working way more hours than legally they were allowed to be working. They were working way further into the night. They were working way more days a week. And finally, there came a point where the leadership of this camp was confronted um, at how they were in violation of child labor laws. Certain numbers of hours kids could work, that they couldn't work past nine o'clock at night and things like that. And the camp had to adjust and figure it out. When the government had to intervene and say, you are borderline abusing your workers, your child workers here. And it's it's kind of a sad thing when the government has to intervene to hold Christians accountable to what's fair and sustainable, in this case, for kids. But it happens, right? There there are good um, ways in which the worldly institution of government that God has created still wields that sword to honor the good and to punish the evil. He does. And it's true. On the other hand, you've got the picture that we're given from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. And it's this apocalyptic vision, this future vision he has, in which he sees a worldly government 
that's so antithetical to the things that Jesus stands for that it demands worship from its citizens. And essentially, you can't even survive under the regime of this government unless you bow down and worship it because it talks about in chapter 13 how you have to accept the mark of the beast on your forehead or on your hand in order to even buy or sell something. Clearly not a government, not a ruling regime whom God would say, submit to because they're looking out for your welfare and your good. So we've got these extremes, which makes it complex. The reality is, you and I here today live somewhere in the middle. God has not called us to submit to an authority that's perfect in every respect. If that were true, then it would have been wrong for Jesus to have said it was okay to pay this tax to Rome. Why? This tax was discriminatory. This tax was only levied on those people groups who were subjugated by Rome and were not given Roman citizenship to go along with it. And yet he says, pay it. If we think about it even in terms of our our own country and our own history, if it were the case that we were only to submit to a perfect government, even at the inception of our country, it would not have been appropriate to do so as Christians. Because for the first hundred years of our country's history, there was a condoning and enabling of chattel slavery. We live in this messy world of in-between. So it's complex. And again, the answer is that the government's authority is limited where it calls us to do something that contradicts what God is calling us to do. Not where we don't like it, not where it's not our preference, but where we can clearly demonstrate that to submit to the government is to violate God's moral law in some way. Which leads me now to the last observation here from Jesus. Since it's often not crystal clear where civil authority should end because it directly contradicts what God calls us to, then we have this principle. We render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's as an act of worship to God, especially in those instances where it's not clear to us. When we submit to the government or any other authority God has put in place for that matter, we do so ultimately not to that authority, but as unto the Lord. Submitting to an authority figure, whether that be parents, whether that be a husband, whether that be a school teacher, whether that be a government and so forth, is never about submitting to them because of who they are, whether we like them, or whether we find them worthy of submitting to, but because God has called us to that submission. Unless an authority figure is leading us into a clear violation of God's will, is leading us clearly into sin, submission is always an act of worship. How so? Because in that form of submission, we are acknowledging and trusting that God ultimately rules over all. All authority he has put in place, and he is a, he's sovereign over all of that authority. That's an act of worship, especially in the messy middle ground that we live in right now. And it's this last point that I want to expand upon in our remaining few minutes. Submission as an act of worship, because it starts to get to the heart of the matter of what Jesus really wants to impress upon the Pharisees, his listeners, and us today. See, the key of this whole passage is that very next phrase that Jesus gives us, and give to God what is God's. Again, we know that everything is ultimately God's. But I think Jesus may have had something specifically in mind here that comes into focus as we understand it in light of the parallel of this coin that had Caesar's image on it. Just follow the the logic with me for a moment. Whose image was on the coin again? 
Caesar's. So who does that coin belong to? But to answer the question more precisely as to what is God's, then we need to ask the question of what is the primary thing that God has put his image on? And the answer to that is you and I. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It was men and women that in Genesis, we're told God puts his image on. Which means then for us that what is owed to God, what is his, is first and foremost ourselves. All of us, our whole hearts are his. Which means that he has claim on our whole lives. That every part of us is to be in submission to him, to his will, to his ways, to his plans, to his standards of holiness for your life and for mine. See, at this point, the government becomes secondary. And that's Jesus' point here. The primary concern he has for his listeners and us is not parsing out every instance in which it's appropriate or not to submit to the government, but his primary concern is whether our hearts are holy gods or not. Or whether there's some other self-interest that's driving our actions and our decisions and our motivations in our relationships. See, the Jews at the time of Jesus assumed it was impossible to both honor God and honor Rome. But Jesus is saying, you can submit to the government in this way without denying what I'm ultimately asking from you, which is your whole heart. Now listen, there is no doubt that there are instances in which we can submit to others out of a fear of man and in so doing, compromise our integrity and perhaps even the truth. But another person could submit to the very same authority in the very same scenario without it being a denial of Jesus, but actually out of reverence for him and in a desire to please him above all. The thing that God cares about the most is what's governing your decisions in either case. Are those decisions made out of a heart that is fully resigned to God? Or are those decisions that are about protecting our own self-interests? The same, by the way, could be said about our resistance to authority figures that God has put in place. One person could struggle to submit to authority because they feel like they cannot truly do so without denying Jesus in some way because their heart's desire is ultimately to please him. But another person could resist submitting to that same authority in the same exact scenario because they're protecting some, something that's more important to them than Jesus. Most likely, their own self-autonomy and authority over their own lives. They don't like not being in control of the situation or they don't like others meddling in their way of life. I believe that that was what the case was for the Pharisees here. That's what kicked this all off. By what authority do you say these things, Jesus? Because he was a threat to their own authority. The interesting thing is that the Pharisees' reluctance here to submit to Rome about paying this tax, had the appearance of godliness to it until they demonstrated a greater reluctance to submit to the authority of Jesus because he was an even greater threat to the things that they desired the most. All of a sudden, it becomes apparent that their greatest aim in their resistance to Rome was not to please God, but it was to protect their own comforts, self-interests, and control over their own lives. I know 
that many of you, and if I was in your shoes, I would as well, probably want for Pastor Matt and myself to come to you with all the answers as to where submitting to the government ends and submitting to the higher spiritual authority begins, where mask mandates should be submitted to or not, or vaccine mandates that may be coming down the pike should be submitted to or not. And these are things that we've had to think through, we'll continue to have to think through, and it's, and it's our job to help shepherd you through those kinds of issues and decisions. It is. But honestly, the thing that Jesus makes most clear here that God cares about most is not whether you have the right answers in every specific situation to all of these questions, but whether your life is wholly submitted to him in every other way. If you find yourselves getting really worked up about the political and the social issues that are hot button issues that we live with today, on the one hand, I get it. There's probably nothing that I've spent more time over the past 18 plus months thinking about for better or worse. But it's a fine line between our motives to secure our freedoms and our rights being driven by a desire to please God versus protecting our own self-interests. And so what Jesus is saying to us today is this, give to Caesar what is rightfully his and use discretion as to what is not but make sure you are giving to me what is rightfully mine in every other area of your life. So are you giving to God, for example, what is rightfully his in the area of your marriages? Husbands, your bodies are not your own, but belong to your wife, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Are you living that way? Wives, your bodies are not your own, but belong to your husbands. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, are you, you living in that way, submitted to one another? Are you giving to God what is his in the area of your thought life? Or do you lay claim on that territory to fantasize in the dark about what you'd be ashamed to bring into the light? Are you giving to God what is rightfully his in the area of your time and your energy? Or are you super guarded with your best time and energy to spend it upon your own comforts and pleasures? Are we giving to God what is rightfully his in the area of our relationships? Not just pursuing those that might provide us something in return, but pursuing relationships with those who may be able to give us nothing in return. See, we're only as submitted to God as we are in the area of the things we treasure the most in life. What is that for you? Are you giving to God what is God's? The ultimate act of living for God for most of us probably lies outside of the realm of politics, outside of the realm of what we see happening in the news, and outside of the realm of taking a bold stand for these things on social media. None of that is wrong, but let's make sure that they're not just superficial distractions to avoiding the real issues that are in our heart that Jesus wants to tend to. As we turn now to a time of celebrating communion, it reminds us of why we are God's. Do you know that in fact we are doubly owned by God? Have you ever thought about that before? First, he is our maker and our creator. He breathed the breath of life into us. He brought us into being. Without God, we would not exist. In that sense, we are his for his glory. 
But even though God created you and I in his image to image him to the world, we have all sinned against him. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, having twisted God's image in us in a way that reflects evil and is deserving of judgment. But by his grace, he doesn't leave us in a place where we have to pay the price that is due for our sins, but he sends his son to stand in instead and take that punishment upon himself. For our sake, he made him to be sin, Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's good news. That's the gospel in short. So God lays claim and ownership over our lives, not once, but twice. As we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, we are not our own, for we were bought with a price, that price being the precious blood of God's own son for you and I. And so we remember this as we take communion today. We remember that to give to God what is God's is to give him yourself wholly and completely in every area of your life because he is both your maker and your savior. So let's continue in a time of worship. First I'll pray and then we'll celebrate communion together and meditate on and and celebrate in light of those truths, okay? Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit whom you've given us as a gift, would do his work of bringing um, both conviction and comfort uh, in accordance to the need of each here this morning. Oh God, help us and our eyes to be opened to understand we are wholly yours and help us to see where we are not living in that way. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough as a beautiful creator to make us and bring us into being We thank you for how that love is even more vividly on display through how when we threw that all away, you sent your son in the world to give us a do-over, to give us that opportunity to image you once again perfectly, eventually, with you in eternity. But now we get to live as people who are trying to become a part of this new kingdom that you're making and can do so by your grace through Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.